My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host, and today I have the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Gavin Christensen. How are you, Gavin? Doing great. Pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could connect. Uh, So let's just start with some rapid-fire questions to put you into context here. Uh, Where are you originally from? Well, I was born in Iowa, but my early Growing up, I was a military brat, so I kind of lived a lot of different places, Norway, Oregon, Texas, you know, places in Utah, but eventually went to high school in South Jordan, you know, at Bingham, and then was an undergrad at BYU, so definitely claim Utah as my home. And growing up, was there a specific career that you always envisioned yourself uh, that where you'd end up? Certainly, even up until BYU, I was going to be a uh, a professor. You know, that was kind of what was in my mind. And I went I went on an LDS mission to Norway and had a great experience, but I also came back pretty pragmatic, you know, from the experience of knocking doors in Scandinavia in the cold and and decided that I was going to be, a, you know, be a, a business person, you know, was kind of the, the conclusion. And, and that led to, you know, selling out and becoming a venture capitalist. Uh, and just give us the the timeline of your, your schooling. So undergrad at BYU and then Mm -hmm. what, what happened from there with your schooling? Yeah. Undergrad at BYU and econ. And then I went to the East coast and worked in management consulting at a place called monitor now monitor Deloitte and great general business experience, uh, came back to Utah to join one of the first venture capital firms in Utah called V spring. And then went away to business school at, at Kellogg to kind of have that business school experience. And that was where I was actually able to kind of start working on this idea of the first seed fund in Utah. How would you describe your current uh, stage of your, your profession? Yeah. So that idea led to kickstart, uh, which I, you know, left Kellogg and, and rejoined the firm that I was part of in Utah, but, but for their New Mexico office and then started kickstart alongside with their blessing. And that little that little um, seed fund that could is now a kind of a force in Utah. It's uh, we, we we're on our fifth fund. We funded 140 companies, including Cotopaxin being one of those, and uh, several other companies that you probably heard of. And so we really, uh, despite some really challenging early years, we're able to kind of prove that Utah is the place for other, so for a bunch of things, including tech. And we're excited about what's going on with Utah Tech now and, and the success and the, the great jobs and the, and the quality of life that's, that's happening here. Curious, was there a specific time in your life that uh, you look back to as the most dominant time of your faith development? You know, that's a good question. I, I would say for me, my real time of questioning of my faith was in high school. I was um, a, a big reader and um, big questioner of ideas and everything, especially in high school. And I ended up going to 
I was kind of at war with my parents at, at some, some level, um, like some kids are. And, you know, and so I, but I, I had a couple of uncles that were at BYU, Idaho now, then Rick's. And I, so I left two days after I graduated and went there. And t- to be honest, that was probably the most influential part of, of my kind of true conversion, I think, which is being around these great mentors who probably helpfully were not my parents as well as other amazing professors there in this very safe environment where I could do a lot of questioning and a lot of study and a lot of, a lot of prayer and kind of getting myself really shaped up and getting, getting, I was such a strong willed kid, you know, getting myself my own conviction about that. I wanted this for me as opposed for, you know, my parents. And then that led to the conviction of wanting to go on a mission and, and, and the mission was amazing as a, but it wasn't like a conversion experience for me for sure. It was more of a, um, a journey of learning, learning to overcome you know, adversity and having lots of great spiritual experiences, but a lot of hard experiences like every mission area in terms of mental, you know, mental health and, uh, challenges with companions. But yeah, it definitely gave me, I, I think I'm still drafting off the, um, the court, sort of the, um, the crucible of my mission in a positive way. You know, I, 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 I owe owe a lot to that experience. Um, so, so how would you describe your faith today? Yeah, I would describe my faith as, you know, certainly central to everything that I am. And, uh, you know, maybe as somebody who is definitely a questioner and, you know, I, I, um, you know, it's a complex world out there. I have a lot of friends in the, that, that I grew up in the church with, you know, whether through my various career experiences that who are no longer in the church, which is, which is challenging. But for me, it's been a real bedrock for the choices I've made the, you know, my motivation and, and, uh, just, you know, just daily true North for me. And was there a moment in those developmental years where you knew that you were headed towards a a professional career in business? You know, I think for me, the choice to go from BYU to the East Coast and do consulting was definitely, uh, and I, I think I chose strategy consulting because it felt kind of like, hey, business meets academics. And so it was still broad and strategic and kind of an intellectual exercise. I think I saw it more of as an intellectual choice than like, hey, I'm going to be a business person. And so I think once I went into the world of venture capital, I, I, I started to say, oh, this is something that I am really drawn to that I, that I get excited about that. I love working with these uh, entrepreneurs. I love um, striking deals with them and, and, and being part of the journey as we try to help these businesses grow, going through the ups and downs of, of the human drama along with the business drama. So I think I found my thing that way. And that's when I started saying, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this, you know, was, was probably venture capital. Whereas I was probably kind of playing at business when I was in consulting you know, just saying, well, this is, you know, I think I, I had this perspective that maybe business was not all that interesting to me uh, until then. So after graduating with your undergrad, was it always the plan to go on to MBA school? Yeah, I, I think it was partly because I just liked school. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think I, it, you know, I, I, I wasn't so worried about ROI, you know, a lot of, a lot of people today on MBAs are kind of like, ah, oh, ROI and um, time away. And for me, it was like, I just liked school. And so it was fun to just do some more school and have time to think and ultimately led to 
some of the most important thing I've ever done, which is saying, Hey, maybe I should do my own thing, which I don't think I would have naturally necessarily done had I not had that time and space. And what advice would you have for a student who uh, is newly graduated and uh, wanting to progress on to MBA school? Any strategies during that time? Yeah, my advice is would be, you know, there's just different layers of of what you get. There's different jobs that MBA school can do for you, and I I wouldn't always view everything from a purely pragmatic perspective. Is what I'd say. Like like I say, I think the most important job that ultimately was the best financial job it could have done for me is that it gave me space and a network to validate, you know, an idea that became a business that as I devoted the rest of my life to. So. How do you put a price on that? Right. So there's, I think sometimes we can be a little bit short term minded, like, oh, well, how much does my salary change? Can I get a different job? Blah, blah. So I would just be a little bit more broad in terms of how you think about a life experience like an MBA. And I think that the reality is most um, people are going to be better off in most, in like every respect, by getting an MBA if they're serious about being in the business world. That's my view. I, you know, do you have to have it? You know, probably not, but there's just a lot of confidence. There's a lot of, uh, actual knowledge and there's a network that you have when you do it that you just don't have otherwise. And you kind of don't know what you missed if you don't do it, you know, at some level. So not for everybody and, uh, not strictly an ROI decision, but also, you know, pretty valuable. Is there a story behind uh, the application process to MBA school and and how did you end up at Kellogg? Yeah, what I would it's so I would say this is a broad theme for me, which is often when I'm I decide I want to do something that's, you know, that's that as I'm excited about, I'll fail the first time around. You know, that's happened to me repeatedly. So, for example, when I applied to consulting firms, I applied to McKinsey and BCG and Bain and Monitor the first go round and totally just whiffed nothing. And, and so then I got, you know, I was getting married. So I, I was like, when I was graduating, I'm like, Oh crap, I need to take a job. So I took a job at, at Fidelity at the time, you know, on the phone, basically as an investments sales rep, which was cool, but got a little bit tedious, pretty fast. And, and so then I reapplied on campus the, the next year I had graduated in three years and this time I got multiple offers. Now I didn't get offers from everybody. I didn't get, you know, I got an offer from monitor and I got one from a couple other more economic consulting firms. Cause I was an econ major. And so like, which is kind of, and that's, this is sort of in monitoring being an amazing experience for me. And that my alum group from there is like one, one of my favorite groups of people. Um, and, and so, so that was like a second try kind of scenario for me. Same thing with business schools applied to four, you know, a couple, two or three business schools the first year with nothing applied the second time, you know, the following year with a lot more effort, um, on a bunch of things and got into just a few places. And, and it was kind of the same thing, which is Kellogg in all honesty was actually not my first choice, but having gone there, it's like really was a great fit for me for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that I could walk to school. We lived on the beach Kellogg has a nice screen on every student. <laughs> so it's just such a cool, like people are so great. My wife ended up being head of the, the Kellogg kids organization. So actually she had more to do with recruiting at Kellogg than I did. 
And so she, she was very much part of the experience. It was actually a very lovely experience. And I, and I really am a happy, you know, um, you know, they were the number one business school when I was there, it was, it was, it was great. So, but it was just one of those things. So that's often what happens to me is I rarely get the thing that I think that I want the first go around. And I, I'm an optimist and often feel like, well, that's what was probably supposed to happen, you know, is kind of how I see it. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but that's, that's actually kind of how I typically see it and, and find the meaning in it. And it ends up being fine. You mentioned with the second round of your applications that you approached it with more effort. What do you mean by that? I definitely worked on my GMAT score and I probably wrote, wrote essays that were just a little more, a little more actually authentic and less salesy, less, less kind of <laughs> like, well, what do they want to hear? You know, and more, yeah, this is kind of who I am. And, and so take it or leave it. Yeah. Cause there's sort of that temptation to try and game the system, right? And totally. what they want and, to hear. Yeah. And, and, you know, apparently they weren't having it the first go around. So yeah. Well, let's jump into the principles that you sent me. Uh, the first one being the law of the harvest. What do you mean by that? Yeah, law of the harvest, you know, and there's a lot of books written on this and there's obviously a lot of scriptural references on the law of the harvest. I think, especially for young people, it's just, you know, and it's a, it's an agrarian metaphor of you sow seeds and, and it takes a while and it takes a lot of care and feeding to have them reach their ultimate destination. And that might, in the case of certain kinds of, cultivation, it can take years or generations to actually get things where they should be. And so I think that's so true in our lives, right? And this, my my next one is long-term game. These are very tied together. So first from a professional context. So ultimately we're all trying to have rewarding careers on many levels. And it's so important to just have a long-term view on it and say, what, what do I what kind of impact do I ultimately want to have? What kind of, you know, what, what kind of lifestyle do I, do I want to provide for my family and, and including money, money being part of that, but also how much time I have to spend with them. Um, how much, what things I will be able to teach my kids or, or my, my nieces and nephews and my family members, you know, what kind of contribution I want to have to society, what kind of skills would I like to have? And, and those don't just appear right? They, they, they take years to cultivate and we, we ultimately kind of reap what we sow in those regards. And so what I found in life in my life and the life of others is that, um, there's, there's no substitute for concentrated effort over time. It's less about binge and purge. Yeah. I, 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 I spent three all nighters on this thing and look how great that, you know, something, sometimes people get addicted to that in college, you know, like, studying for a test. It's more like, what did you, what have, where, what are you doing during the work hours for five years? You know, how are you pushing yourself? How, how much effort are you giving on a day-to-day basis? What kind of investment are you making in other people? And, um, that determines kind of that just, it just creates orders of magnitude of separation in careers. And, um, it's, and it's the, the opposite is also true, which is that if you are doing the wrong things, like, I would say I would give myself as an example of like, Hey, I, I, I was so focused on, uh, you know, having kickstart be successful, but that I did neglect my relation with my wife and my family in a way I shouldn't have, um, that it takes years and years to kind of work your way out of that. Like that's not an overnight thing. 
you know, so it's like, there's, there's comp the, the, the rule of, you know, the principle of compound interest applies in all aspects of life besides finance. Do you have any like personal tactics you use to make sure you're staying in the, the law of the harvest mindset? Um, I, I, so for me, what has worked, you know, and what I've come to over time is it's, so it's, it's a lot of making sure that you treat work hours like as real work hours where you're really asking yourself a kind of meta conversation with yourself, which is what am I actually trying to accomplish and, and how is what I'm focused on right now actually leading to that? You know, for example, you know, uh, in the early days of kickstart, I was trying to create the first seed fund in Utah that no, then, and no one cared about it. Like no one thought it would work and everyone thought it was kind of lame and silly. And, and so, but I just, you know, I was living in New Mexico and I had on my whiteboard, like create, you know, first seed fund in Utah. And so every day I, you know, it was, I was just working out of my home office a lot of days that I wasn't traveling. And so I, I like felt good or bad, depending on whether I felt, did I move the needle towards that huge goal? And now each day it was kind of small tasks, like call these people, see if they want to invest, learn from these other fund managers, talk to these companies that we might invest in, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, there was no, um, hygiene. There was there was no like, Hey, we're in a shared office space and we're all like startup people. So we're cool. It's like, no, it's like, if I didn't feel like I moved one step closer to the big goal, I was stressed, you know, and that stress is good sometimes because, because you're feeling uh, an existential, uh, feeling of like, I'm trying to create something special and I only have a certain amount of time. So, so there, so that it's just sort of goals, but it's also like not covering up the anxiety, like letting the anxiety work on you in a positive way. How about that? Um, is maybe part of what I'm saying. And, and then finding ways to manage that anxiety, right? Uh, what I would call daily renewal, you know, for me that a lot of that's exercise and having fun, finding time for that, learning to kind of sequester the anxiety and the constant need to achieve, uh, with important relationships and all, you know, all those things, but you know, each in its own. And yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that, those are some things that have worked for me. So early on, when you had this idea of creating the first seed company uh, in Utah, like, did you have a clear vision of what that looked like? Or was it just sort of this big idea that you were pointing, pointing towards and hopefully getting there? Like, how do you know what it is that you're moving towards? So, so it's, that's the entrepreneurial creation process. And I think it's, it's, um, it's more focused on the problem you're trying to solve than actually what the solution is. So, you know, the problem I was trying to solve is like, early stage entrepreneurs in Utah needed access to capital before, you know, what we call the series a stage or before they could raise a bunch of money, they needed to raise a little bit of money. And so I wanted to be that for them. And so, so that I wanted to solve that problem. And so I was flexible about what the solution ultimately looked at, looked like. And no, in some ways, what we create, what we ultimately created with Kickstarter was actually even better than I'd hoped for. You know, I, I, it would have been tough for me to imagine like, yeah, we'll create this fund and we'll raise hundreds of millions of dollars and back hundreds of companies. And Utah is going to have all these billion dollar valuation. It's like, that was a lot to believe in 2008. You know, that was the great recession, right? It was like, are we going to just go backwards for a decade? I mean, it's tricky. 
So, um, but I, I think, I think it's the advice I give to entrepreneurs too, is I stayed very focused on the pain point of like, we are solving a really important problem for entrepreneurs. And, um, and that's where the solution took shape. Any other thoughts around this concept of, uh, the law of the harvest? Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I know, I think that's the, the main point I put on, across on it is this idea of compound interest of like, Hey, uh, the most powerful you think you, ha- you have in your life is time as opposed to money or any other resource and where you invest your time, um, you know, ultimately determines kind of what you're able to harvest. And, um, it's easy to look at people who are harvesting whatever and be jealous or, or envious or, or, um, and, but just recognize there was a price to be paid for that. And I, so maybe one more thing I'd say on that is I, I took a trip down with one of my team members to New Mexico one time. Um, you know, we were just talking and I, and I had said, Hey, one of the, one of the things that separates, you know, entrepreneurs from other people is they're willing to do things that other people are not willing to do to achieve their dreams. You know, when, when you consider that most, a lot of people who are ambitious and they're intelligent and they have people skills and they're trying to do something special in their lives, that's in some ways that becomes kind of table stakes. And really what separates an entrepreneur is like, okay, what are you willing to do that other people are just not willing to do? And I think in my case, it was pretty obvious, which is like, Hey, I was willing to go live in actually for a while, a trailer in New Mexico with my family after graduating from a top MBA program because of of this dream of the seed fund, you know? And, uh, it was interesting. I, and I kind of mentioned this individual and he was like, Oh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't move to New Mexico. And it's like, Oh really? Like, that's interesting. Um, that's too high of a price, huh? You know, like, and it just, and I think a lot of young people are pretty similar, which is like, no, I, I need to have a certain thing now, you know, again, which is a law of the harvest concept is saying, yeah, you're not willing to sacrifice for the thing that you want to achieve long-term it probably somebody else, it, whatever, you know, that thing is probably somebody else who is willing to make that sacrifice is likely to do it then. So when you're in those moments or when you were in those moments of, of deep sacrifice and you just know that you're pushing through a, a lot of adversity um, with the hope that this is going to work out, like obviously a lot of people start companies with the hope that, you know, I just want to sit on a, a pile of money the rest of my life. But I would imagine that's not enough. Like you have to have a, a clear vision. I think that, I think my, what I find certainly with, with venture backed entrepreneurs that uh, financial motivation is kind of a weak motivator actually. Uh, because it's kind of easily satisfied at some level. So generally so, someone who is motivated by money is not, not going to be a great entrepreneur. They're not going to be a great founder of a big company. It's got to be someone who's more motivated by building something special, by solving a certain problem, by, by a vision of what the world should be like. Because in those moments when, you know, there's some dark moments and I certainly had some dark moments on my journey where I was like, man, I'm about to lose my house. I'm about to lose my family. You know, we don't have any money where it's, it's a little bit too hard if it's just financial motivation. Like it's, it's kind of not enough. And in those moments of sacrifice, like what were the spiritual motivators or the spiritual principles uh, that, that kept you going? Principles like tithing principles, like perspective. You know, I think that if you believe in the gospel, you know that ultimately the, the purpose of this life is not to win some financial game. It's to try to, it's a test. It's, it's try to, it's to try to 
to be faithful and to do as much good as we can and to, you know, to learn to be Christ-like. And, and so failure at a business is not like devastating. It's like, that sucks, but it's, um, it's not as devastating. There's other, there's other things that are a lot more devastating than, than that. And so I think that, that also there's kind of this really interesting thing of after my mission, it just didn't feel that hard. You know, it's kind of like, Hey, you know, like honestly, after, after Norway, it's like, well, I'm, I'm getting rejected all the time, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. That's I've, I've experienced that a lot. Telemarketing before my mission and then my mission. It's like, this is nothing new. And so that wasn't that hard for me. Um, and then, you know, things like there was definitely a moment where we were like a few months or a few weeks from hitting the wall financially, just like losing our house in, in, uh, in Oh, probably Oh eight, uh, Oh nine. And, uh, you know, it was like a real choice. Do we pay tithing or like this makes, this kind of doesn't make financial sense to pay tithing right now, you know, but, but we actually, you know, it's again, we did and it, and it, we actually made it just barely. And, you know, we always kind of felt like that was a really cool blessing. And, um, you know, not everything, you know, not everything worked out, you know, we had, you know, I guess I, just to give you one of the big blessings in my life was that when I was in Boston, I actually, uh, almost died that that was not a blessing, but I, I was, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness called Addison's disease, which for those that don't know what that is, it's, it's a chronic disease, not unlike say diabetes, but you don't have adrenal glands. And so you take oral steroids. It's a pretty big deal. It affects your entire life. It, you know, it took me years and years to start to figure out how to function the way I had before. But in, um, in that process, I actually, um, I had a, I had a cousin that was out there. I actually received a priesthood blessing and the, the, um, the guidance and the blessing was, this is when I thought I still might die. I, I, I was down to like 120 pounds. I couldn't walk upstairs. I would throw up every day. I couldn't work. And I, I just taken this hotshot job like three months before. This is before or after business school. This is before business school. So I was oh, 20, wow. so I was 24, newly married, been married a year. And, um, so I was in a weird spot, you know, and, and the blessing had nothing, said nothing about the illness. It said, it just said, you know, Hey, I bless you that you'll, um, learn what you need to learn from this illness. And I, huh. at the time I was like, so maybe I learn it and then die. I mean, it's like, what, what's going to happen? <laughs> wow. And, uh, but, but, you know, since then I, it's, that's been one of the most, uh, spiritually inspired things that's happened to me because what I learned from the illness is humility. I learned uh, perspective. I learned, you know, to really treat each day that happened after that as a gift and not take any of it for granted. And frankly, to not, to not get too worried about it, to say like, this is all bonus time for me, you know, at some level. So that was a real gift. Now, did I live like, and as enlightened as I'd like, no, I made a bunch of mistakes still, but, um, that was a huge gift. And then, you know, um, you know, we, you know, so anyway, so a bunch of things happens in life and, 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 um, yeah, for me, I always, I fortunately have been able to kind of have perspective on, Hey, I really hope this thing works. And I, and I, ironically never doubted that it would, even though I probably should have many times. Um, but I could always, uh, rally myself, um, based on those kind of feelings. So obviously the entrepreneur journey typically 
contains some level of deep sacrifice and effort and pushing through adversity and whatnot. I'm curious, like how you reconciled all that with, uh, with your family and your wife, like, I, I bet there's moments when maybe your wife thought, you, listen, you got an MBA, like go get a job, right? So so how do you re- like get your family on board and know that you're all working towards a, a higher goal? So it's hard because, you know, I, and I think it's, it's good to learn from my experience. I think the metaphor I would say that I did that I regret is that it's kind of like when I was at BYU, I was so worried about getting good grades. If I had a really important test on Friday, I would like, cancel everything that week that I was going to do just so partly. So I could say I left everything on the field for that exam. You know, I like, I, so, so even if I didn't do well, I'd be like, well, there's nothing else I could do. Real life doesn't work that way, which is we, we have to, we have to go with bounded rationality instead of like absolute rationality. We have to put some limits on our, what we can contribute, especially when we're, you know, we're, you're married, you have kids, you have responsibilities. And unfortunately, I took that approach in the early days of Kickstarter because I was so adamant and that it, I wanted to work that I was like, well, I need to leave it all there. And that means I didn't, I didn't allocate enough. Now balance is dynamic. It's not static. And so if you're an entrepreneur building, it's not going to be that balanced, but you can still find, you know, we had a, we had a, a crisis in my family during this time that I was building Kickstarter, where we lost a child, unfortunately. And, you know, instead of, being there for my wife and like the way I should have, I was so obsessed with saying, well, this is this there. We've had one tragedy. Let's not lose our house as well. You know, I was so afraid that I kind of let myself get consumed by that fear. And, um, so it's like, we still, you know, we still have to, um, acknowledge and, and the people we love that are most important to us in those moments, even in it. That's, I mean, it seems so obvious, but like so many men do this, you know, specifically, um, because it seems rational to them. You know, it seems because you feel like, Oh, I can control this. I can't control life and death, but I can control this business. Um, so, you know, a lot of regrets on that, but I would say, yeah, learn from my experience and, um, you're going to, it's not going to be balanced. And I think, you know, speaking specifically to LDS men and LDS women, I think LDS women are amazing and they're so patient and they're so such good partners and spouses. But once you, there's a point at which they say, and this was, this was what broke my heart was my, is my wife was like, Hey, I feel like you got your dream and I didn't get mine. Now, I think you've uh, conflated some of these principles, which is great. The next one being uh, long-term gain. Anything else to add there? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm melding these all together here. So, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah um, no, I think that's, uh, that's what I would say is like, yeah, yeah, take, there's, there's, you know, hey, be focused, put all, put all in, but there's moments when you have to, you have to kind of remember what's important, you know, which is, that's my, that's my last one is like, keep your true North um, because um, if you don't, you know, it, it, it's back to my first principle, which is like, that's, it's not going to get fixed in a year. It's going to take 10 years to fix, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to work the opposite of compound interest. All right. Let's lighten the mood with uh, your principle of humor. Why does that play such an important role in your journey? So, and that, another one of my principles and it, and it goes together is that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the book, um, the, the hero with a thousand faces and this, and the, um, the, 
the Joseph Campbell metaphor of the hero's journey. And, you know, I love literature. And so I tend to see myself as almost in a third person kind of perspective, which I think, and so often when I've had hard things happen to me, um, things that I've failed at or, or entrepreneurs I've invested in or, you know, whatever, you know, we have these betrayals and failures in life and being able to laugh at those, um, and see them as like interesting and funny is actually been really helpful to me. And, you know, to kind of see the humor in it, the dark humor sometimes, um, I think it, it helps to, um, allow us to move, you know, certainly like really believe in the principle of forgiveness just as a business, as a business reality, you know? Um, and, uh, anyway, I think humor is a good step to help us forgive because it helps to defang the wound a little bit. So what does this principle look like in an application as far as humor goes? Yeah, I think it's a lot of decompressing with humor. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's like, Hey, this entrepreneur committed fraud, but I start to think of that person less as like a personal attack and more like, this is kind of like a Dickinsonian character. That's like, has this interesting fatal flaw, you know, who also is a complex person who it's hard, you know, who it's hard to understand. And like, ultimately like I, I'm going to, maybe I won't do business with that person again, but I'm, I'm, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold on to business bitterness because like they're kind of interesting and lovable in their own way. Right. They're kind of like a, like I say, it's like a, a, a character in literature, maybe. So your principle of, um, you know, the unfolding story and obviously your life is becoming a story. I mean, the success you've had, the tragedy you've gone through. I mean, I bet sometimes you feel like you're, you're in a movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's true of everybody, right? It's, yeah. it's, uh, and, um, I think, you know, for, yeah, for me, it's like, yeah, it's, it's this recognition that this is why I love the metaphor of the hero's journey, which is adventure awaits, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, you feel that, you know, it's, it's the, the call to adventure pa- passing the threshold, right. Leaving, leaving the house, you know, for me that that happened two days after I graduated and I was out, I was done and, uh, have never kind of looked back. It was never someone to be homesick. Um, and so I've, I've just always loved the adventure of life, it, but along the, of course, part of that is the, um, the tragedies that come that are just part of the story and actually provide a lot of the richness for what we experience. You know, we certainly know that those opposites are, are, have to be there in our lives, um, for it to be the experience that it is. And, um, it's beautiful though. The whole thing's yeah. beautiful. You know, from my own experience, when we talk about the hero's journey, and I often refer to it as the larger story. You know, I, f- I feel like this concept has really helped me when I've come across opposition, adversity, because obviously in any any movie, you'd expect these types of things to happen, this adversity to happen. So when I face adversity, and I'm thinking in that, that larger story perspective, it helps me carry through that because I'm sort of, of course, adversity and opposition is supposed to happen. That's right. And I think that, you know, the gospel is certainly the the frame in those moments, uh, for the, like I say, for the broader story, um, and the grounding of, of, you know, when, when you, you know, it's like, why, why do I expect that hard things are not going to happen in my life? What, what right do I have to expect that? 
So now with your experience of running Kickstart, like just talk to us about Utah, about this ecosphere of business and startups and venture capital. Uh, what could we learn or better understand about Utah as a business industry? In this, in this, definitely the journey, it started long before us, you know, we've been forced to be part of it. Uh, but there's always been incredible entrepreneurial energy in Utah, you know, from the people, from the students, from the professionals in Utah, from the, you know, kind of pioneering, um, settle the West kind of spirit, you know, which is, which is a, a great, beautiful metaphor that, that really is pervasive still in the West of like, anybody can be anything, you know, which is, which is an, an amazing thing. And, um, so it's, it, so it happened a long time before us that we had all this entrepreneurial energy. I think that more and more of the energy is being, is more sophisticated and more focused on building, not just, um, not just MLMs or not just like sales driven businesses, but like deep product and engineering driven businesses that are balanced, that are building credible products that, that millions of people use. And that's, and that's really meant that venture capital to be put to work in these companies to help them scale and become public companies, you know, so that's, that's, what's changing. And I think that we have such a great, we have the youngest state in the country by a long shot in the, in, in Utah and this, and they're talented and they don't have student debt by and large. And, um, instead of going to the coast, like they did for, you know, like I did and so many people did, they're staying here because they're saying, Hey, our best opportunities are here in Utah. And there's a bunch of people who are not from here. They're not LDS. They're drawn to this, uh, innovation hub. They're drawn to the lifestyle, the outdoor lifestyle, the, the quality of life and the family friendly atmosphere. And, um, it's a really powerful thing that's happening right now. You know, that's, 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 um, you know, bringing those things together and, and, you know, magic is happening and it's going to continue to, to, we're not seeing it slow down. The number of entrepreneurs, the quality of the companies, it's just, uh, increases every year. So with my limited understanding of venture capital, you know, I typically think of Silicon Valley, um, and the, the power and force that, 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 uh, being the center of venture capital for, for many, many years. And so what, what are the main differences between Silicon Valley and now the Silicon slopes in Utah? Yeah, I, I would just say Silicon Valley is amazing and it's the juggernaut, but there are, as the world has ch has changed over the last you know decade, but especially the last few years, it's just increasingly clear that there's no one has a monopoly on innovation. No country, mm -hmm. no no state, no no ecosystem, and Utah is its own tech hub, and, and it's and it's it's like sophisticated investors and entrepreneurs. I mean, for a long time, it was kind of a punchline for us to be arguing about Silicon Slopes or whatever we wanted to call it for other folks. But now it's like, we're on the map. There's just, um, we've had so much success in Utah with all these great companies that, you know, people take us seriously now, which was really nice. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, yeah, Silicon, Silicon Valley is just going to do what it's going to do, but Utah is, is, uh, is, is going to keep going. And, uh, it's not a competition at all. It's just, it's just, what can we do? And frankly, what can we learn from Silicon Valley? And there's probably some things we can do better than, than, than Silicon Valley did over time. Yeah. Some, some ways that we can make the kind of, um, society that builds up around, um, this innovative center, um, better in, in many ways. 
So if there are any budding entrepreneurs out there listening to this, uh, what do they need to know about Kickstart? And uh, if they want to approach you and you know look for some help with some funding, uh, what do they need to know? Yeah. So, you know, hey, uh, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn or, or, or hit us up on our website, kickstartfund.com. And, uh, you know, hey, we're, we are a, a source of early capital to pre-seed and seed entrepreneurs. We, um, we, we really are looking to back big visions and remarkable entrepreneurs. We were the most active investor in Utah by, by a pretty strong, by a pretty large margin. And we're able to be very choosy about who we work with, but we are really excited to hear from folks on your, that listen to this, that, you know, feel like they have an idea that they can, um, that, that venture capital would be helpful to, to grow, to be a very large business. And, um, you know, we're proud of those that we've backed the ones that have worked and the ones that we haven't, which is, you know, that's yeah. just, that's the business we're in, you know, and we have many entrepreneurs that did an amazing job. It just didn't work. And that, and that's how it goes. And that's part of our brand is how we treat, everybody, not just the ones that work. Well, Gavin, this has been fantastic. You know, just learning about your uh, hero's journey. Um, and it sounds like it's really headed in the right direction. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I've, I've, I've tried to learn along the way and try to pick up as many magic items as I, as I could along the way to kind of get me through. So awesome. um, yeah, it's been a pleasure, Kurt. Thank you uh, for the, uh, for the time and what you're yeah. doing to kind of share the stories of individuals and, and uh, provide this important content. Thank you. And the last question I have for you is simply, you know, imagine you're in a room full of uh, MBA students or business professionals that are Latter-day Saints. What final encouragement would you offer them? You know, I would just, I would just say, Hey, uh, it's going to be fine. You know, you know, Hey, you're a, you're a Latter-day Saint, you know, you, you, you're probably, you know, different countries around the world, but you're, you're kind of in a, you're in a very special category already and that you really have good perspective on your life and it's going to be fine. So, um, you know, just lean in and get to work and you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll be just fine. Is what I, it's, that's, that's maybe that's it's something I'd want to say to myself, you know, back then is just like, actually you're going to be okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.